mal sagt er mal. And thank you everyone for being here and for bringing your faith and we wouldn't have come here in the first place if we didn't anticipate to hear from God. So I just want to say that's great. Good stuff. Keep drawing near to him. He is faithful. Right, good morning everyone. My name is Matthew, to those of you who don't know me. Yes, Alice. <laughs> um, okay, as Debbie mentioned, I'm speaking through Esther. Those of you, are, most of you I've, I've actually seen the past few weeks, so you know what we're up to. Um, looking at the book of Esther and the providence of God. So the thing, maybe I'll just give a little... Inside into what I'm doing here. So, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe for those of you wondering what I'm on about and why we are doing this, it's not often that we preach through a book, but <clears throat> something like the providence of God. You could probably gather a few scriptures, a few great quotes, and a few things and try and talk about it, but The thing about the providence of God is that it actually plays out in real life. And so a better way of learning about it is by examining a story that actually illuminates that. I can give you a hundred cool summaries about thoughts about the providence of God, which might stay with you or they might not. But when you look at the story that is all about the providence of God, it sticks. And... um, That's what I've endeavored to do here through the series of Esther. Today we are on part three. Next week will be the last one, part four. Um, And by it, I hope that we can become established in a confidence towards God, a confidence that He is working in our lives and He's working in our nation and He's working in the world. That when we look out, we wouldn't look out with the same cynicism or dread that the world does. The world has no hope when it looks out on the landscape. We can sometimes fall into that if we don't have our eyes on God or even a sense or a confidence that he is at work, that he is sovereign over all of those things. So my hope is that we will be established in that for our own lives, for our workplaces, our families, but for even greater for the nation and for the world. Um, I'll quickly pray for us and then we will, we will launch into it. Father, thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that in your sovereignty you act as well, Lord. You are not distant, you are not far off, but you act, you intervene in our lives, in the lives of our nation, in the future of the world, Lord. You intervene and you are Lord over all of those things. Anchor us this morning, Father. Anchor us in the assurance of your providence and of your working. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there we go. Is that a providence of God? Part three. <laughs> uh, maybe on the next slide there, I mentioned last week, I'm going to 
for the sake of time, I'm going to be very, very short on the summary. So you guys will have to catch up. But what's great about Esther is that it speaks to the Israelites in their time of exile, which is a wonderful parallel to our time. We also live as exiles. And the last week I shared this, but I'll share it again, what's, uh, the way that the ESV summarizes uh, the story of Esther. And it says, Christians are called to live in a world with some striking resemblances to the one Esther and Mordecai lived in. Governing authorities are often indifferent and sometimes even hostile to the faith of believers. And especially in the West, events often take their normal course with little or no evidence of the miraculous. But the book of Esther, like the New Testament, teaches how to live in that world with courage and integrity, carrying out responsibilities to the best of one's ability and trusting God in his providence to protect and provide. His providence is when he acts sovereignly in our lives. From his position of sovereignty, he orchestrates events and brings about events and things um, out of his sovereignty. When we, when we understand that it can be his provision, it can be his healing, it can be his protection. It can come in many forms and ways. But the point is to say that his providence is when he acts as sovereign to do his will. But we're going to see in the book of Esther, it's almost always got a cooperation from his people as well. So maybe on the next slide there, just a little timeline to see where we are. I discussed last week as well, the thing about providence is that it happens over a long time. And often it's only evident to us in hindsight. We've got the book of Esther to show us that. But the characters themselves in the book of Esther take a while to interpret to read providence, if we can put it like that. And that's how it is for us. We can see seemingly insignificant events in our lives and think that they matter not at all. But they do. And God will. When we act in faithfulness, they are important to God. So just a little timeline that we said last week. It takes place over 10 years. Uh, we looked at the history of the Persian rulers and all the rest and got to Ahasuerus, otherwise known as Xerxes I, and so we discovered where we were in history, where all of this is taking place, and how it takes place over 10 years. Um, last week we looked at, at the first two uh, items on the list there, which is the banquets that the king held, his war council, and, um, and Vashti's refusal. Then we looked at how Esther became queen. So that all happened over quite a long period of time. It was quite slow. Now we're into where Haman casts his lots. That's five years after Esther becomes queen. But then we see there, stuff really starts happening. So in the story of Esther, we see the providence of God setting things up, putting things in place slowly through the years, and then suddenly it can look very dramatic, and God is moving, and you can see it, but there's been a backstory for for 10 years. So today we're going to look at um, those last three. This one, we'll get to this last one next week. So... Onto the next slide there. Brief summary of where we are in, in Esther. We did chapter 1 and 2 last week. That's where the king held his banquets. He commanded that Vashti appear before him so that he could show off. After he'd showed off all his wealth, the queen refused. That got him really hot under the collar. And he gathered his wise men to issue an edict. Now, an edict is an important word because it's when the king puts something in writing, it cannot be repealed. It cannot be undone. He can give a command or he can give a, an instruction. But when he gives an edict, that's how it is. So he then gives an edict to make an example out of Queen Vashti that she will never come before him again. He ends up lonely. It says, after those things, when his anger had calmed down, he missed his wife. He needed a wife. He needed a queen. So then, again, his counselor said, well, let's select the best ladies of the land. Have them come in, go through a training and beautification and a whole selection process, and we will choose another queen for you. So it happened, happened, happened. Esther was chosen as queen, and a royal feast was held for her. And what was dramatic about that is that in a Persian nation where the Jews had no status and were vulnerable, despised, a Jewish girl became the queen of Persia. Her, she had concealed her identity as a Jew. Her cousin Mordecai, who was looking after her, who raised her, told her that's what she needed to do but here you already see because when we go go down the story another character comes in who is Haman 
his intention is to wipe the Jews out completely, to remove every last remnant or resemblance of them from the kingdom. But here, God's already putting a Jew at the top. So let's see how that plays out. Um, and then the last part of chapter 2, Mordecai, Esther's cousin. Mordecai was older than her. She, Esther was an orphan. Mordecai raised her as his own child. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, and he hears two of the attendees, the eunuchs of the king, plotting to kill him. He then tells it to Esther, who tells the king, and they find out that it is so. They hang those guys on the gallows, and Mordecai's deed of loyalty and faithfulness gets recorded in the chronicles of the king. Now, that's also important, because later, the king goes and reads those chronicles when he can't sleep at night, and the story comes to mind again. So, Esther, in her humility and faithfulness, finds favor. Mordecai, in his faithfulness and loyalty, also finds favor. All right. So the next slide is there's just a quote that I borrowed from Michael Eaton, whose books I use to, to do this kind of thing. Um, he says, all of these events will have great significance. Speaking about Esther and Mordecai. God takes his time and works slowly weaving together his plans for history and for the lives of his people. If we trust his sovereignty, waiting for him to work and cooperate along the way, we too will be used for his purposes. Okay, so without further ado, Esther chapter 3. The main story here is Haman plots against the Jews. Again, if you're new, I'm deliberately reading through all of it so that we can spend time in Scripture. We don't have to rush past Scripture. <clears throat> and it starts. After these things, after the things I just mentioned to you, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Maybe quickly discuss with the person next to you for two minutes why you think Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage to Haman. Haman was a Persian whom the king had seemingly dramatically promoted very rapidly to second in command, basically, over all of his kingdom. And the king had commanded that everyone should bow to Haman and pay him respect, pay reverence, pay homage, homage to Haman. <laughs> but Mordecai wouldn't. Again, it's a small event, but it turns out to be a massive event. Maybe discuss quickly with the people around you in two minutes why you think Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage to Haman.
Okay. Many vivid discussions. All right, maybe I can hear in two words from Aubrey what you guys decided. And say Brandt. Just in two to five words. <laughs> or Wonderful. Say, Brandt, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be telling you guys anything new today. Um, <laughs> you guys are on it. It's lovely, it's lovely. <clears throat> so maybe we can go to the next slide there, um, which is sort of a summary. So you guys are definitely on the right track. What is interesting about this is, so Haman was a descendant of Agag, who was one of the Amalekites, one of the people groups whom the Israelites had to drive out when they got into Canaan. Um, at one point... It was when Moses and them were going through the deserts, the people of Agag and the Amalekites said, you can't pass through here, and they stood in the way of the Israelites. Moses and the Israelites said, fine, we'll go around, but remember. God did remember. God then put Saul in as king. So at the time of Samuel and Saul, God was now taking vengeance on the Amalekites for what they did to the Israelites. That's the story where Saul is meant to go out and absolutely annihilate the people of Agag. Well, Agag was the king, and he was meant to absolutely annihilate animals and people. But Saul thought it a good idea to just keep the best of the animals for a sacrifice and to keep the king alive. He had disobeyed what Samuel had, what God had commanded him to do through Samuel. That's the story. And Samuel comes to him and laments Israel, um, Saul's disobedience and says, bring Agag before me. And it says, Samuel hacks him to pieces. Um, <laughs> Very powerful Old Testament way of doing things. Um, <clears throat> so Haman is a descendant of that guy that Samuel hacked to pieces, King Agag. Haman is a descendant of his. Mordecai, we looked at last week, was a descendant of Kish, who was the father of Saul. So you've got two lineages actually coming together. Agag, Haman, and then you've got Saul and Mordecai. And God actually said in Deuteronomy remember forever what these guys did. Uh, so it would have been in Mordecai's mind. He would have known who Haman was and who these Amalekites were. So there's that. But at the same time, you've also got Haman who's been exalted to great levels of power and really enjoys the king's command that everyone bow down to him. But here is also something interesting. Part of that was court etiquette. So it wasn't unheard of in the court of the king that you would bow down as a way of respect and so on. On the one hand, you've got what's generally done, court etiquette. But looking at the character of Haman, I think it would be very clear that he would assume a godlike status. And as you mentioned, the, the example of Nebuchadnezzar, and the example of Xerxes himself, we saw what happened when those egos got touched. Definitely assumed a godlike status. It was in the way that they ruled over their people, it was godlike. They held people's lives in their fingers and had power to just do what they would. Um, and interestingly, the, Greek, the Spartans, whom we mentioned last week, also, in Greece, refused to bow down to the Greek rulers and pay them that sort of reverential awe because there was an aspect of worship to it. These rulers had a godlike status. So, there's a combination of things going on that Mordecai says, I just can't. And the people badger him. Mordecai, why do you? Why do you not? Why do you not bow? Why do you do this? He just says, I'm a Jew. 
it goes against everything that he is. Everything in his identity. And that is so compelling for us because how often do we face those pressures in the workplace or even in your families? Why do you do this? Or why do you not bow to this? How many secular pressures around us today do we have to choose not to bow to? And much will be asked, people will ask you why eventually. But it is for us to be faithful. Mordecai was faithful to his God, faithful. On the other hand, for the Jews, you shall have no other gods before me. In that regard, it was plain as day. God said, you'll have no other gods before me. Here's Haman, assuming a godlike status, Mordecai says, sorry, you are not a god, I can't bow. And that will play out for us many times in our lives. Many, many idolatrous and humanistic pressures coming around us every day. Why do you not pay homage? Well, I'm a Christian, I just can't. And that's all the explanation you might need to give. It might bring out a lot of trouble for you, but... What's also telling about this, I find, is the mixture between court etiquette and something that's very clear. I think that plays out more realistically in our lives. You know, if the government got up and said, all Christians must worship Satan, all Christians would say, no ways. It's that clear. But it is seldom going to come out as blatantly as that. What's so interesting for Mordecai is there was idol worship or or bowing down to someone, but there was also just an element of the way things are done. That's how everyone understood what you do in the kingdom. You just bow. And I think that's for us. It will come as a mixture of those things. It will seldom come as blatantly as thou shalt kill and we'll say thou shalt not kill. It will be much more subtle when we are tempted to bow. Interestingly, in Rome, when the Romans really persecuted the Christians, it wasn't that they, for them worshipping Christ, it was for them not worshipping the emperor. What we see with Mordecai too is that your faithfulness to God, when you seek to be faithful to him in those moments, your testimony will come out. Mordecai has been trying his best to hide the fact that they're Jews. told Esther to hide that. He's been trying to hide it. Eventually, when it's come to it, he's had to say, I'm a Jew. And that's how it'll happen for us as well. We'll have to say, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. I can't do this. Um, But I think what's important for us is what will help us to discern, especially when there's that mixture and it's not a matter of an express command that goes directly against, is clarity of who we worship. I think we should, more than saying, what is permissible? What can I do? Is it, is it lawful? It's kind of what the Pharisees asked Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Jesus drives home the main point. There are things that belong to Caesar, and there are things that belong to God. And that's an encouragement for us. If we have clarity on who we worship and, and why, that, that will be what we need to be able to discern whether or not to comply, whether to refuse, whether to not bow. So, just moving on from there, we see the personalities of the pagan rulers. Uh, We saw there that Haman was filled with fury. Those are the exact words of when Nebuchadnezzar, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow to the idols and wouldn't serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods. It says he was filled with fury, and he turned on his turned like that against them. It's the same thing we see here with Haman, and it is what we saw with uh, Vashti and Xerxes. But that's one offense. We see Haman, Mordecai rubs Haman up the wrong way, gets up Haman's nose. Haman actually turns that into a genocidal hatred and a prejudice. We saw there Haman, instead of dealing directly with Mordecai, he turns this personal offense, he refrains and turns it into something that he can apply across the board to all Jews. He can kill all Jews. And so he probably hated Jews already, and now it's really come to the fore. And Haman goes about setting a plan in motion to destroy the Jews everywhere. Okay, so the next slide. And many such plans will come against Christians, just to let you know. Many, it's Christianity and secular religion is incompatible so conflict will come, and many such plans will come to come against the, the body of Christ. All right, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, interestingly, that's when the 
Israelites were celebrating Passover, which I understand is actually what this weekend is as well. This weekend, the Jewish people are celebrating Passover. Here, the month of Nisan is when they traditionally did that. <clears throat> In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also. Do to them as seems good to you. On the next slide, see, so what's happening now? We see that there's actually, it was a king's command that everyone bowed to Haman. It wasn't an edict. So Mordecai, uh, Haman can't actually go to the king and say, Mordecai's broken one of your rules, therefore execution. He has to come in from a different angle. He's got a personal offense with Mordecai. He has to now, to exact his revenge, come with a different angle to the king. And he does that. But before he does that, he is very superstitious. The Persians had their own religion as well. Why doesn't he just immediately carry out his plan? Instead, they cast lots, which was a traditional way of trying to get some divine guidance as to when to do what. So he cast lots. And what's important about that is in the first month, in the month of Nisan, they cast it. And he's trying to see in which month should I carry out this plan. After throwing the lots day after day, month after month, they they're still in the first month. They see it must take place in the twelfth month. That's very important because it means that once this Ed, once Haman executes this plan, the Israelites have eleven months to make another plan. So he he does that, and in that we see God's sovereignty even over the lots. Haman is superstitious. He's trying to figure out when to do it. Already you see the finger of God. If it was not for those eleven months, the Israelites wouldn't have stood a chance because you had to put this edict in writing, distribute it all across the two million square mile kingdom. No email, no nothing. Horses and chariots and riders carrying letters to everyone. So it took a long time. We see in Haman's angle to the king, these people, there is a people, um, there is a people, and he starts to spin a story about the Israelites to the king and saying that, they don't obey your laws. They don't, they don't follow the ways of the Persians. And, and we see something similar when, when Paul is brought before the Roman governors. The accusation there is that these people don't follow the laws. These people, what does it say there? These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Again, the pagan mind is incompatible with God, with the Christian worldview. And in both these accounts, Haman again is over-exaggerating the case of the Jews. He's saying that the Jews won't pay taxes, they're going to rebel. And he paints them in as bad a light as possible, with slander and a real distortion of the facts. He then says to the king, now interestingly, we can observe from scripture there that he'd just had a war with the Greeks, it wasn't very successful. He'd also done a remission of taxes in the times of when Esther was made queen, so perhaps the royal treasuries were quite low. Haman says, I've got 10,000 talents of silver that I'll give to you, king. If you let me carry this plan out, I will give it to you. 10,000 talents was about 34 tons of silver. It's about 4 billion rand in today's money, but probably was worth, its equivalence was probably worth much more in those days. So Haman manipulates the king. The king is surprisingly callous and ignorant of Haman's plot. He's planning a mass genocide, planning to fund it himself, and the king goes along with it. Okay, on the next slide there, having received the king's signet ring and permission to do it, Haman summons the king's scribes. And it says, they were summoned on the first month, and an edict, remember what you said about an edict, 
according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The next slide there. An edict cannot be repealed. This plan, a terrifying plan has been set in motion. That can't be undone. It's interesting there, I'll pick up on the words destroy, kill and annihilate because two times later on, when Mordecai actually issues his own decree, it's to kill to destroy, kill, and annihilate. I've mentioned before the word, words in scripture are there for a reason. It's not like how we speak, where we go. It's awesome, great, marvelous, and exceptional. We mean the same thing. To destroy is to reduce to useless fragments beyond repair. To kill is to cause the physical death of, and to annihilate is to vanquish the collective existence of all Jews. His hate is motivated in the organization of a genocide, He's also said there to plunder all their goods. He was probably going to get rich by it as well. And the king had the 10,000 talents that he'd offered to the king. The king said, well, it's yours to organize this genocide. So he does it. We see callous and ignorant leaders sit down. They sit down to drink and quite chuffed with what they've just organized. Um, the Matthew Henry commentary actually says that Haman tried to keep the king drunk so that he could not realize what he'd just done. But either way, you've organized a genocide and then you sit down and have a cold one. And then the rest of the city we see confusion and hesitation of the city. If the whole of Susa was hated Jews as much as Haman did, I'm sure they would be rejoicing. But in that we see that the city didn't feel the same way. Alright, then chapter 4. Esther agrees to help this. Everyone still with me? Everyone still awake? Now Mordecai comes into focus. The edict's gone out to everyone. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When the Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. There we see Mordecai revealing Esther's identity to the eunuch. And Hatak went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to him and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Not so in the kingdom of God. Scripture says we have access with confidence to Jesus. We have a throne which we can draw near to boldly at any time and be assured of response to, to our faith and to our drawing near. This is very different. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Esther is, is highlighting this law that if she just pitches up into the king's presence, she will die. 
unless he extends the scepter. She has her doubts about that because she says, for 30 days he hasn't called me. She starts to feel her popularity with the king is probably waning, <coughs> waning or decreasing. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. A well-known scripture in our charismatic circles. Again, here's the beautiful context of that. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, All right, go gather all the Jews to be found and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So a lot of back and forth there between Esther and Mordecai. But what we see, the first thing I want to highlight for us is lament. This is a devastating edict that has gone out. Mordecai laments. We'll see later he has an assurance and a confidence of deliverance. He says deliverance will come. But he doesn't bypass the news of this devastating edict with, it's all going to be okay, don't worry. He laments and he laments violently. He's in sackcloth and ashes, inconsolable. So he laments it thoroughly, and that's an encouragement for us. Maybe we like to bypass because it's uncomfortable to lament. Maybe we'd like to try and avoid processing some of those kinds of things with, it'll be fine, it'll be okay. I think if you said that to Mordecai in that instance, he'd probably... I don't know what he would do. Looking at what they did in the Old Testament, I might get violent with you. Um, <clears throat> but we see that Mordecai has three things going on inside of him. He's got this lament that is thorough. At the same time, he's reaching for a plan through Esther. He says, Esther, you should go to the king and plead on our behalf. And then thirdly, he has a confidence that deliverance will come. And what's really beautiful about this is Mordecai has, has a, a grounded understanding of providence. We, we, would, we would want God's providence to come in. We might even be presumptuous and say, God will fix it. God will do it. And yes, he will. But again, in Mordecai's life, I think it plays out in how it actually plays out in our lives. And the Psalms are full of that as well. Oh Lord, how long? The psalmist laments, but he holds on to the faithfulness of God. And that's how it under plays out in our lives. It's not presumptuous, but it's grounded. Mordecai is connecting a few dots. He has a sense of providence versus know all, knowing it all and saying, this is what God is going to do, X, Y, Z. He has the plan. He has a sense. The way he puts it is to say, who knows? And it's not a who knows. It's a who knows. He has a positive sense of Esther's purpose there. Esther is now in a position where she's got choices. She has to be bold. Um, Mordecai is connecting the dots and he says to her, Esther, who knows? I think, Esther, probably this is why you've been exalted to queen. If Esther was exalted to queen, seemingly randomly, now she's queen. Was it likely that that exaltation to queen was so that she could just enjoy being a queen for the rest of her days? Not likely. And Mordecai doesn't think so either. He says, this is why you're there. He starts to say that to her. Um, So she's in that position and she's got some choices to make. And she then acts in boldness. And so we see her cooperating with God in his providence. Next week we'll, we'll see providence really coming into focus. In the last chapters of Esther, it becomes undeniable that God's providence is at work. These chapters, there's a sense of it. Mordecai and Esther are sensing it, but they are cooperating. Mordecai knows there'll be deliverance but Esther needs to actually go to the king for that deliverance to come and Esther says well I need favor there we actually need to pray so that I have favor there call a fast and the Israelites call a fast and there's a response the providence of God is not sit and wait and let's see many of the times he's asking us to step in and do small acts of faithfulness 
they become big things in his hands. Okay, you guys are able to stick with me for the last chapter for today. Chapter 5, sip of water. Mordecai and Esther are ready and poised to step out in boldness and faith and to see the deliverance of the Lord. In chapter 5, what Esther does is she prepares a banquet. And then what we also see is that Haman plans to hang Mordecai. Because he, he just cannot, it's almost funny how provoked Haman gets by Mordecai. Alright, on the third day, that's when they have finished fasting, Esther puts on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She gets dressed properly. You would think that this would be an emergency, but sometimes the best course of action is to wait and then you wait on the Lord and then you fast and then you pray and then you wait. One would be tempted to say, this is an emergency, you need to go to the king right now. She says, first we need to seek the favor of the Lord. Before I go ask favor from the king, we need the Lord's favor. She goes to stand in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Whew, big relief. That was the moment where she might have been executed, but she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. At that moment, as she say, This Haman of yours has plotted a genocide and we need to reverse it. No. You see, Haman was the king's favorite. And... Haman had also just convinced the king that the Jews operated according to their own laws and didn't care about the Persian laws. Here Esther has just broken one of those laws. She's been received favorably, but if she was too rash, she might have actually proven Haman right. And the king was also not likely to turn on Haman at that moment because it was his favorite. And Esther said, this is what she actually said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This we understand as a, a kind of saying, if you will. It's probably not meant to be taken literally. We see Herod doing the same with John the Baptist. I can't remember whose daughter it was who danced nicely for Herod. And he said, what can I give you? Even half my kingdom. She wanted John the Baptist's head. And that's what she got. But it's, it's, not, it's not a literal statement. It's kind of a gesture. And then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Again, we see some restraint from Esther on the next slide there. She's biding her time. She has a sense of God's timing. She's also, she's, maybe from an emotional intelligence point of view, she's actually also warming the king up in a way. She knows you can't just come in there, say your say, and walk out. She has to act with intelligence and so we see that she's received favorably, but she's got a sense of restraint. She's not tactless. Um, the cooperation with God's providence requires steadiness, patience, faith, wisdom, and sense of God's timing. And you know, even in your workplace, you may have a sense of something you need to do. There's a stand you need to make. There is a way in which you make that stand. You actually can't just run into the, even as right as you may be, you cannot barge into your manager's office and say, this is what I, this, this is what needs to happen. You need to understand and have a sense and have that tact. And patience, maybe you need to wait a while. Maybe you need to wait until it's not about to be the Manco meeting and you, now you want to tell him everything you want. Maybe there's a better time. Esther exhibits this, a steadiness. She's not panicked. She's not panicked and fretting. She's patient. And she's got confidence in God 
wisdom and a sense of God's timing. We see this, that she gets an interview with the king, she doesn't perish, but then she prepares a banquet. And then at the banquet she says, I'm going to make another banquet. And then at the banquet she says, okay, here is my request. She's preparing Xerxes, and Haman is flattered, yet he's being set up for the colossal fall. And now Haman really comes into focus, and it's almost comical. He's just riding this train. It's just him and the queen and Esther. Who could be more favored than him in all of the kingdom? But it's a big setup. Okay, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. I mean, much less so now that Haman's ordered his annihilation anyway. Why would he stand? He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And now, much like Xerxes did for six months at the start of this book, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet, all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman just can't get past that offense. It's, it's actually insane how much that means to him and his ego. He wanted people to tremble before him and Mordecai didn't. And that was just the worst thing about his life. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits, that's 23 meters high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Again, his wife and them are quite presumptuous about Mordecai's, uh, about Haman's own position, as if he could just go to the king and say, order Mordecai to be hanged. Then go with the king joyfully to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So the, the next slide is the last slide. Next week we see what happens. So Mordecai is about to be executed, we think. But something happens next week, which doesn't. <laughs> but what we do see, uh, and, and it's a phrase I used earlier, which, which I also learned from Michael Eaton. But we see Mordecai reading prov- Providence, if I can put it in inverted commas like that. He didn't connect the dots and have the full picture. He had a sense. And came out in his language about a time such as this, Esther, it can't be that you were just exalted queen to just enjoy queenship. There's a reason for that. Um, but that requires care. You need to be close to God to, to be able to do that accurately. Haman, on the other hand, is also reading providence. He's a hater of God and his people, but he's also reading the circumstances. He's reading the events as if, I'm unstoppable. I'm at the feast with the king and queen night after night. I've been promoted to all these things. I've got 10 sons. I'm really rich. I'm going to get even richer when I kill all the Jews. He's reading the providence as he's going to the top. What's actually happening is that he's being set up for a colossal fall. Um, Michael Eden actually says that the... How did he say it? Let me actually just rather read it. But... These two people are reading Providence differently. Um, Michael Eaton says, God's people cooperate with Providence. Wicked people are deceived by Providence. So all of these events are happening. Haman, in his deception, interprets it one way, which is the wrong way. He's wickedly proud, resentful, and wrathful. And he's ignorant about his day of calamity, and he boasts about tomorrow. You know, God in James, in the book of James, God warns us, his children, about boasting about tomorrow. If we do that, God is likely to just say, hang on, maybe put a bit of a spanner in the works and just keep us in it. It's, it's detestable, that kind of boastfulness about tomorrow. How much more when Haman boasts about tomorrow and how he's about to extinguish the people of God. God's got a big plan and God will take action against Haman, which we will see next week. Um. So that's the end of this. That's Esther chapter 3 to 5. Not too bad on the time. Um, but I think we can just, France, I think we can sing maybe Cornerstone. But if you have another one in mind, you can do that. I don't mind. But I do want us to worship um, just at the end of this.
And as I said at the start, and my prayer is that there's an impartation of how to study God's, how to understand God's providence, that there's an impartation from Scripture on how we conduct our lives with God, how we interpret our workplace, our family, things in the nation, even bigger things in the world, that we would be anchored in, in a sense that God is control, that our faith may be anchored in that. So, yeah, I just want to sing one more song, and then we can all stand and worship, and just put your eyes on God. I'll quickly pray for us. Father, we thank you that you intervene in the affairs of man, that nothing takes you by surprise, Lord, that you are ever-present to the things going on in our lives and in the world. We thank you, Father, that you are always working. As Jesus said, my Father is always working. You are never asleep, never taken by surprise or distant from what is going on in our world. And Father, even as we come to you, perhaps we've been unanchored. Perhaps we've been caught up in the, in the dissipation and the cares of this world. The, when, as we see lawlessness increasing, our love may even grow cold, Father because we just lose hope and we despair of the world and we can despair of our nation, we can despair of our lives. But Father, as we come to you today, I ask that you will renew us, renew us in a childlike confidence that you are at work and renew us in a sensitivity, Father, to understand the times and know what we should do in our families or in our workplaces and even broader scope um, if we've been given that, Father. Help us to have that wisdom and to to cooperate with what you are doing. In Jesus' name. built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.